sometimes But don't be afraid to be a source of light Peace, good people. Thank you for coming Peace. to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Felicia and Kariga. <laughs> yes, welcome, welcome to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Kariga and Felicia. <laughs> and you insist. I insist. Yeah, no, that's what it, it's what it says. Well, as long as you stand by me, I'm good with that. You know I'm going to stand by you. All right. Well, welcome, y'all. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again for another episode. Man, last week we talked about your experience and understanding grief with your students. Mm-hmm. We talked about your trajectory to D.C. and how that informed your lens, mm-hmm. your SPED background. Mm-hmm. We talked about the art. Big time. And we also closed our conversation with this affirmation I'd like to open us up with, if you don't mind. Okay, I'm with it. It, it says, today I will practice love by showing compassion to people or spaces often overlooked or intentionally silenced. Mm. I will practice love by showing compassion to people, people or spaces, spaces often overlooked or intentionally silenced. I felt like that was the perfect one to close with. Wow. And it feels like such a rich invitation to an opening. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. often overlooked or intentionally silenced. Uh, I just want to also name that in the last episode, we introduced the language that my students were my grief mentors. Yes, that's right. Right. And because we realized that all these spaces in life that we are journeying to, often for the first time, uh, they require mentorship. We have mentorship for our businesses. We have mentorship for Uh, particular endeavors, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Some couples even have mentorship in their marriage, Mm -hmm. right? So I want to acknowledge that my uh, students were my mentors in grief. Man, and that's such a unique position for them to be in, right? You don't even want that for for your students. You don't want that for your children to have to understand the depths and the nuances of grief. Especially when it is often perceived that they don't understand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some of the advanced experiences, right? So we have, we have schools that are often set up in this uh, adult supremacy, right? (laughs) Where the adults are automatically inherently more right than the young people. Yeah. But this, that psyche um, is challenged Mm -hmm. when the young people hold the wisdom, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So suddenly that that hierarchy by which adults have the right or right away is, is dissolved, and rightfully so, because now we're going to be in a true transference of learning right, and teaching. So often overlooked and intentionally silenced, uh, I think about the perplexity of what it means to try to intentionally silence Someone whom you would just rather not hear because hearing them requires you to interact with accountability or at least their experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So the the intentionally silenced uh, is not just referring to people who have their voices um, taken away, Mm -hmm. but it also has to do with Voices being ignored hmm. that are actually vocal about what they need. Hmm. Uh, very similar to black voices in this country. <laughs> and we can coin them according to whatever social justice movement you want to mm-hmm. look at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like even in the context of civil rights, they weren't presenting this new philosophy or science. They were observing the same constitution mm. that is said, right, that the, gov- that the elected officials are said to observe and how they just have this interpretation where our voices just disappear, right? Or they marginalize the voice or they otherize the voice. Mm. So I want to speak to uh, the power of calling voices in, 
I want to speak to the power of the connectedness what we experience when we call voices into the space, when we even call our own voices into the space, mm. right? Because that that connectedness is really the premise for which we gather here for this learning. Mm. Yep. It's because I was connected to my young people mm-hmm. that I got a chance to learn the wisdoms that they carry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it informed my life greatly. Yeah. And I like that you are providing us with this framing. I also want to acknowledge that while we had this conversation last week, mm-hmm. um, as we introduced ourselves as soul affirmations with Kareem and Felicia, we very much introduced much of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I like that we were able to even go further in depth last week. And I look forward to taking it to the next step and including their voices, Mm -hmm. but also understanding the wisdom that they had. I think that requires a reframing. And I want to ask you, you know, how, how did you find that your students held this wisdom? Mm. What was your experience that led you to understand that? Mm -hmm. And I also want to talk a little bit more about what your processing was and how your students understood that after the loss of Kareem. Yes. When we talk about the wisdom that my young people hold and how I was able to um, understand they had this wisdom, it had a lot to do with their early silence. Hmm. And paying very close attention to what caused them to voice their thoughts, feelings, or otherwise. So when we were having, whenever a lesson would get to the place of discussion, the classroom was most rich. Hmm. And in this, if we could achieve a discussion that it could include as many voices from that classroom, I would have a chance to learn who they are. So you pay attention to when they speak. Um, You acknowledge their truth. You remember their experiences. Mm. It isn't uncommon for me to learn their grief calendar. It isn't uncommon for me to know what days are anniversaries. Um, It could start as early as what's being tagged on the desk or what's being tagged on the lockers or what's Mm. being written on their skin, Mm -hmm. what the tattoos say, Mm -hmm. um, what the shirts say, what the jackets say. Yeah. These are parts of their story. Yeah. And in learning this, you learn their value. I'm now able to see that I was learning where their love existed, where where there's their zone of love. Because these are also young people who have been indoctrinated to a philosophy that says, you know, love can get you killed. Hmm. So you see this interesting, they have this regard. I I would identify it as regard, right? It isn't uncommon for someone to get punched in their mouth if they speak an ill word on someone who is no longer here. (laughs) (laughs) right but that was coded as respect Mm. i'm coming to later understand that that was love that grief called them to that action insofar as you were infringing upon the sacred memory they hold of their loved one but it was coded as respect and there was a response you had to give so let's just say now that young person is what from being my student is now in my office as a dean. Well, I have history. I know what their values are. Mm-hmm. I know what that name means. And I know what conflict that can, they can experience if someone speaks an ill word on that name. My responsibility is to humanize their experience and not vilify it just because it violates the school code. Learn more. Who, who is that person to you? What is that value? Right. Let me hear about how that person impacted you so I can understand you. Then I can help you navigate 
um, different responses to such challenges. But that could only happen after I've earned the trust by understanding why this is important to you. I'm naming one instance that I remember for sure. Yeah. Right? But they taught me so much about the love, the grief, the complexities, what happens when it's not given room, what happens when it's not acknowledged, what happens when it is acknowledged. Right? Mm -hmm. And from like an epidemiology standpoint, mm -hmm. if you are learning the stories of these neighborhoods and these young people who have transitioned, it gives you a larger landscape of understanding what the social problems are that the young people are experiencing because you can use a lens that helps you see this behavior as connected to social outcomes experienced. You gotta remember, DC is not big. Right. It's not big. It's just very divided by neighborhood and quadrants. Mm -hmm. But you have all of this violence experience in this small radius. So it, it begged of me to understand these neighborhoods, their history, their relationships, their beefs, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not uncommon for young people to inherit a beef that's not theirs based <laughs> upon a history that they come from. Mm -hmm. I lay all this out because this is the learning, this is the landscape. Mm. This is what I gathered wisdom from those who were otherwise intentionally silenced. Mm. I gathered wisdom from the students who were at the alternative education campus. Mm -hmm. I gathered wisdom for students who were on their last stop. Right? Yeah. That is a very marginalized population in schools, in community, in the world. And that's where I got this wisdom. Hmm. So there is value to us all. I think that's so courageous to allow yourself to understand them that way, to allow yourself to reframe respect and see it as love. And I know that that pathway to understanding is not one that you just choicefully made, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. that, that came through your experiences with your brother. Correct. And and then trying to remember the wisdoms and then have the courage to apply them. It's like knowing that there's a truth uh, that you may not be ready to engage with. Mm -hmm. That often happens in grief. Mm -hmm. My students, in support of me, often gave me their experiences or the wisdom that I gave them. Some of them even played me my own songs. <laughs> and it wasn't to uh, call me as a hypocrite. It was to remind me of what they know is inside me. I remember those days. I remember that specifically. And I think in the last episode, you talked about your school and it's sitting on the corner of hope and hopelessness. And mm -hmm. one of the questions I think I have asked to try to refine and understand over and over and over again is how does one choose hope when they have interfaced with hopelessness and only know hopelessness and have never seen it before, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have not seen it work in their favor. Mm -hmm. These students, these children, these, these families have had to deal with gun violence in their neighborhoods, in their immediate family, right? They've, mm -hmm. they've been harmed. They've been invisibilized. They, as you said, they're, they're silenced even. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. does one at, at that intersection even choose hope, right? And so here comes Kariga and he's, he's, got, he's got a roadmap, if you will, of this hope. It starts with source of light. <laughs> you know sure what I'm does. saying? Yeah. yeah. It's, it starts with that. Yeah. And... It also includes Fly Away and it also includes Roses. And what I love about these these songs and these messages is that, well, one, your students are no longer silenced. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now they're seen. Yeah. They're not invisibilized anymore. Now, now and and now we're we're moving at the speed of trust, right? As you yeah. say. But then it's like how 
even with all of that, right, as you say, the students brought you your music. You have to choose hope. And I remember the rage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember the difficulty of choosing that in those moments. I remember. I remember the way I treated you in those moments. <laughs> I remember your love. I remember how caring you were and how I was unable to receive it at that time. Not in a way of causing harm to you or myself, but anything that felt like goodness to me, I had a hard time receiving. I had a hard time receiving any good to me. It felt like an empty place value because the only good that I wanted was a different outcome for my brother. So every other good, unfortunately, depreciated in value. I get it. And that that thinking, those habits of mind, are true and honest. I can disclose, but they're also very dangerous. Mm-hmm. If we lose all value of good outside of the good we wanted. But I remember hmm. when the students were bringing me my lyrics, they were doing it in two ways. Reminding me of my goodness and what my power is. I've now come to later learn that that power is love. And what what some of them knew then and what many of them know now and what I know now is that the power of love is greater than the power of revenge. Mm. And if you engage in that, you are forfeiting your right to fully stand in the power of love. It's not that it doesn't make sense to want revenge. It's not that it doesn't make sense to seek it. It doesn't. It makes perfect cognitive sense when you experience harm. But in any choice, you have to be willing to stand in the decision of that choice behavior. Some stand in stubbornness and spite. Some stand because they wholeheartedly believe it. Either of those two reasons, had I stood in that power of revenge, I would not be standing here today. Soul affirmations would be on the inside, silenced. The same way we silence so many voices behind bars. Hmm. The way we invisibilize the wisdom they hold the way we invisibilize the problem solving that they have in there, right? They have disappeared our assets in so many ways. Now some seven years later, I now can understand the power I have in standing here today and telling this story and the lives it can touch and how we can move at the speed of trust and how love can move at the speed of light. But I'm able to do that because I am not under the supervision of the state. Hmm. Right? So it was imperative for my young people that I hold on to this freedom because they knew the love that runs through me. And they had younger siblings and people in their neighborhood they cared about and they don't want this message to disappear. I still get hit up from DC. I still get reminded how important those years were, that messaging is and how that messaging is not being expressed now. I still get those inquiries. My work, what I thought was education was really designing my lens on love, being able to love what challenges me. But being able to love what challenges me was a whole different practice around the psyche of the wound of losing a sibling. I first want to describe it as a wound. Mm. And you you can't bandage it up. You can't make it heal faster. You have to be with that wound. But in many cases, we aren't taught to be with our wounds. Yeah. In the black male experience. Yeah. We aren't taught to tend to our wounds. We are taught to soldier on. Yep. And whatever the values are of the soldier, according to your, your rank or your infantry, mm-hmm. 
there's your values and your marching orders. Hmm. But we weren't taught to tend to our wounds. So I battled that very honestly and openly in the beginning. Mm. Feeling some sense of what is my responsibility to my brother? I know I have other brothers, but what is my responsibility to my brother who is now deceased? What is my responsibility to my brothers who are alive? Based upon our values, based upon our family, we don't let this slide. We, we've been taken up for each other since we started going to school. Yeah, and it's it's not just two of y'all. You know what I mean? Like yeah, this, y'all are y'all y'all are abundant. It's, it's, yeah, and I also described to like at the time, you know, eight siblings, and it's not like one is replaceable. It's mm-hmm. like you just took one eighth of us, mm-hmm. and now each of us are a fraction of ourselves because you've harmed us in this way. Mm-hmm. And all we ever had was each other. Mm-hmm. And because we weren't going out and causing harm, we came from humble beginnings, right? I mean, you're talking children of immigrants who moved to California. And in California, they don't understand children of immigrants who are black. They don't understand that immigrant experience. So here we are growing up, taking care of each other. Right. Not like care. not like they do in Brooklyn. <laughs> Please, everybody's Caribbean in Brooklyn, right? From some place. Man. <laughs> when we got to California, it was just like they didn't even understand yeah. that we were having an immigrant experience. They didn't understand that we were first generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means we had to do a lot of taking care of each other, protecting each other, uh, paperwork for one another, making sure things get in the right place. Mm-hmm. So we were so close, so close. Um, I even remember uh, Kareem came to live with us in DC. That's right, he did. <laughs> so he got to see these young people. He got to see that part of my life. He got to see me teach and lead. Uh, he was there, some of the earliest recordings of our music. Yeah, he was. He was recording his music. Yes, he was. And taking fire photos in Silver Spring, D.C. I, <laughs> Remember that I love picture? It. Why you got to do my brother like that? He didn't understand. My bro, it's documented. He didn't you, understand. You can find it. He didn't understand it. that like, D.C. was his own district and Silver Spring was a part of Maryland. So he thought he was in Silver Spring, D.C. He got a picture and he popping, he popping the mess out of oh, that he, collar. Hey, he's definitely Northern California popping the collar. It's the cleanest. <laughs> But um, oh, yeah, he, he got to come out there and see that part of my life. Mm-hmm. And he was so proud of his younger brother, his younger brothers. Uh, Lamar was with us at that time, too. Mm-hmm. And um, little things. I remember him being upset with me because I was taking my car to the shop because he thought that I should be doing it myself. <laughs> right? What? I'm in grad school. I'm teaching. We obviously are performing music and poetry all over. And I'm commuting crazy. When am I going to have time, Kareem, to learn how to do what you're telling me to do in this car? He tells me it's easy. I can show you. Well, I don't know if I really have time for you to show me. If you want to do it, that's fine with me. But he was so industrious. He literally could do anything with his hands. Anything. He could fix anything. Fix anything. Cook anything. Cook anything. Make anything. Make anything. He could build anything. He could even sew. I remember in middle school, <laughs> check this out. He was a dope artist too, right? He can draw. Remember that uh, picture he drew of you and I? That's right. He did draw a picture of us. Yeah. Uh, but he can draw really well. So in middle school, he decided to turn his art into a hustle. And he would draw whoever the girl's crushes were. You know, at that time, crisscross. Stop. Crisscross was a crush, right? So he'd draw these pictures of them for whoever their crush was. Then he flipped his picture drawing business and took the home economic sewing class. Then he learned how to make pillows and he used to stitch the faces in the pillows. Stop it. And sell the I'm telling you the truth. Oh my God. And sold the pillows in middle school. And I'm thinking to myself like, this dude is next level. His partners don't understand it at the time, right? Because he's making pillows. I love it. But- he literally could make any idea come to life. 
Um, I think about the time I was taking Felicia uh, down to Long Beach uh, from Sacramento. Uh, what was this? It was like your 20th birthday? My 20th birthday. All right, so we're taking her down to uh, yeah. Yeah, SoCal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we had just picked up her dad's uh, yeah, the, Buick the, Century. What year was that? Like a 2000? Man, I wish I could remember. I think it might have been like a 2000 Buick we Century. We called it our scraper, though. It was definitely a scraper. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. So I stopped by Kareem's. That's right. And I tell him we're about to drive down to L.A., but the radio isn't working the way yeah. I wanted to. yeah. He goes in his room, gets me a deck, and tells me he would install it, but he doesn't have the time. Yep. So he told me to drive down to our other brother in Fresno. This is Tariq. <laughs> because we needed to stay the night and break up the drive. Yep. So we spend the night in Fresno with my brother Tariq, and he installed the CD player for us. Oh, that was so tight. So these are like the type of older brothers I have. Yes. They literally can do anything, make anything, have protected me through everything. Loved me through everything, supported me through everything. Uh, and Kareem was also an amazing educator, right? He's like well regarded for this back pocket toolkit he had. He had like this notebook that he would carry from all the years of his education as a um, supplemental education, extended education specialist. And he could walk into any auditorium, any room, and automatically have a game to engage the kids because he had all this experience from parks and recreation all the years before. <laughs> so he had like the same way I carry my rhyme book or my journal. Yeah. And I'm sure it's had rhymes in it too. But inside of it were all these games or things he could reference. <laughs> and most of them were stored in his head. But if he ever needed a hard copy reference for like a new game, he had it in his back pocket. Yeah. He was a legend. Um, an avid gardener. He also started a garden at his school. I mean, just like music in production, I remember him teaching himself to engineer and use Pro Tools and how to record and writing his own songs. And at the time, uh, he was recording a lot of music with my older brother, Keon. And the, 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 the joke is, like, they couldn't keep Kareem out the studio. And he would tell everybody that they didn't want it, right? Because they weren't ready to work as hard as he was. But <laughs> this was just his work ethic. Yeah. It was just his work ethic. Um, I like telling people about him and not just about my loss because this is my big brother. And I, and I like that you are telling us stories about him, stories that I didn't even know. <laughs> I think it's so very important um, to your grief process also. But as an example, so that we may understand more about or how quickly like that part of them gets invisibilized. Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit last week, like how quickly people try to dehumanize who this person was based on how they transitioned. Yep. Yep. And, and, and as I listen to your story, all you hear is, I mean, you may be able to hear them through the mic. There's smiles on our faces. He was such light. Such light. So imagine that conflict in your mind, when you know this person is this, but someone else, the media, the majority, the you know what I mean? Try, yeah. to, try to make him into something else. And this is what perplexes me so deeply. This is what happens at the tainting, the staining of gun violence, right? When our people are taken from us by gun violence, the media uh, embeds these assumptions in the stories. Because this is just what we are taught to think about gun violence. And this is what we're taught to think about gun violence concerning black life, mm -hmm. black male lives. Mm -hmm. But we don't own no factories for no guns. And we don't own no boats, no mm -hmm. planes, no ships. We know that these guns are not produced by us. And they're used as a tool to not only take us away from our families, but to invisibilize the stories of our humanity. And that is one of the tragedies that I just couldn't let sit with me. So that's why I began to write of my brother and speak of my brother. I couldn't hide the part of the story where I was experiencing this pain. Yeah. You took light from us. Mm -hmm. That's the way I felt then. You harmed us. What would he do to protect me? Right. My brother was very protective. Right. 
First one. First one to fight. <laughs> these are these are the facts. <laughs> these are the facts. But he loved so hard and so intently. And so long term. He wasn't temporary about how he loved. Um, he was a father. That's right. And his baby girl is doing amazing things in the world. But that was his world. So y'all, this is just a this is this is my big brother. This is what I've been having to work with, work through. I remember one night particularly when revenge was most on my mind. And uh all day I was able to pose as caring for my family and making sure that my brothers were good and telling my mom that I was good. And somewhere around the two AMs, three AMs. Every I, night. I wanna I wanna go outside, I wanna find answers. And I don't actually want to let my other brothers know, not to worry them, but to not implicate them. And my mom had this, I'll call this prayer shift. It it must have been the Holy Spirit for real. I mean, she birthed us, so she knows us. Man, I want to take a second really quick to acknowledge your mother's prayers, how long she's been praying and how me and Sheena have said, for years that our children's 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 children are covered by prayer from your mom. How long she's been praying and sometimes how long she prays. All right, but. (laughs) Shout out to mom. I love you, mommy. But this, this woman trying to hold the rage of her sons, of my father, I think really from which we all get our flame. So she's trying to hold all these men. Big ups to her and that prayer. She caught me at the door one night. And she could tell what was on her son's mind. She could feel it in my body. And she just uh, grabbed my hand and hugged me and prayed for me. And then I had a fever out of nowhere. And these fevers would come regularly at night. Mm -hmm. That's how angry how deeply hurt I was that's how much there was a war inside my body fevers at night I also got to a place in this where I knew it wasn't sustainable by virtue that I was either going to have to do something or not but the in between was more taxing than the choice But it got hard to do something because we couldn't find him for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we had all different inquiries. And the day of Kareem's funeral is when we got the call that he was in police custody. I remember that. Yeah. I remember the police that pulled up on our house because our gathering was so large. And they were attempting, attempting to inflict the psychological warfare of white supremacy on a grieving black family on our property that we owned since before that officer was born, because I could tell how young he was. Yep. You know, SAC PD Ludd had them young officers. <laughs> Undertrained and underinformed. <laughs> Do better. Um, but I remember th- these are all things that a family has to experience mm-hmm. while trying to grieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? The rage, the misunderstandings, the outright, you can't do this here. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> but this happens to black people, black families all over the world. That's why I'm so glad we can come here and tell stories like this um, of what happens when we survive our love, Mm -hmm. what happens when that love carries us, what happens when we stand with the power of love more than we are willing to stand with the power of revenge, understanding that one is so much greater than the other. The power of love is pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, It lasts for generations. That's the side I chose to fight from, but I did not 
choose love to avoid right. my feelings of anger or evade my feelings of anger. I, I wrestled with them. I sat with them. I investigated them. Love did not disappear my, my pain. Love did not disappear my grief. I sat with them. I investigated them, right? I, I wrestled. I almost feel like even, so the wrestling brings about the reframing. You are able to identify that all of those things that you're wrestling with are actually evidence of your love for Kareem. And that is, I believe, a common misunderstanding when it comes to grief. We already know that grief is love, right? And I understood more about that with my loss and my experience. Mm -hmm. But before I used to have this question of like, man, how do you choose love in this situation? Like, I saw you. I, I saw you battle those fevers. I saw the rage in your body. I saw the person. I saw that human being. Mm -hmm. How do you choose love there in you know, you, you you mentioned your students bringing your music to you. And I also want to contextualize that. So they're bringing to Kariga the Surrender album. Kariga also was working on the Peace King album before Kareem passed. And Peace King then had to be put on hold mm -hmm. completely because now he has been challenged with everything that he had ever known about choosing light, choosing hope. And loving black people. And loving black people. Right? It got really Naturally, hard. that is that is something that comes up. Who can you trust? Yeah. You're looking at you're looking at your people differently now. Yeah. And so you asked about how does one how, like how does one even choose the love? Right. Uh, am I correct? Yeah. My my question is how does one choose the love? But I feel like I also understand that you understood that the love was never lost as evidence of what you were wrestling. Yeah. And I, Very I, clear. I love that as you were working on Peace King, I don't even think Peace King was done yet, mm -mm. but I remember one late night you were sitting on the edge of the bed and you had written this verse that I feel is one of the most profound and well-synthesized experiences of the black male cognitive process when they lose someone to gun violence. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I can ask you, I can try and spit it for you. You know, I'd be rapping, but <laughs> I can be, ask you. Be, do God bars. <laughs> uh, and now let me see if I can uh, retrieve that. I'm remembering the room. I'm remembering the light. Mm -hmm. I'm remembering the pain stains. I would oftentimes leave on the sheets from writing uh, at night. Uh, trying to use minimal light. I remember that as well. That used to frustrate me. I know, but I, I thank you for your grace and understanding <laughs> that we were writing things yet to come. But that verse go, uh, what happened when the king wanted to go back to that nigga in him? Or the redeemed wanted to go back to that sinner in him? Or the sober wanted to go back to the liquor sipping? Or the forgiving won't forgive their own brother or sister? I get it. I feel the pressure. I can't breathe. Shed so many tears at night, it's like I can't see. We lost too many to the struggle now, so I can't grieve. But I lost my brother to the struggle, shit, and I can't breathe. Type of trauma, make you feel like these walls are just collapsing in. Type of shit that make a conscious rapper want to snap again. Make Dr. King grab his pistol and just start blasting it. Make blacks want to kill blacks for killing blacks again. Make niggas want to be proud to be an African. Make the world want to acknowledge that we are African. James Brown fist in the air, we black and proud again. Said James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud. Now sing it loud again. What happened when the king wanted to go back to that nigga? Man. That intersectionality of I'm writing Peace King. It professes my love for black people. It professes my love for the margins. It professes my courage to love us under all conditions. And I experienced the harm of a black man taking my brother's life. And I remember I remember telling God, like, I don't even think you could use me anymore. I think, I think I'm too tainted. I don't know if I could always love us. I don't know if I'm any good to the messages you had in me before. I remember approaching God as if like, I'm not turning my back on you, but I am not good enough to carry this. Because I knew the feelings I had inside were inconsistent with the gospel that I held true. And it didn't feel good, but I couldn't change it. Mm. It just was what it was. I would keep writing, keep working on Peace King. 
when we get to trouble, don't last always. Mm. Uh, but this will become an integral part of me trying to understand my journey. And in my pursuit to understand my journey, I would continue writing. And I found that some of my writings just couldn't fit in a song. The way I was experiencing music, the way I was taught about music, the story was bigger than songs. So I started trying to write essays and books <laughs> and journaling profusely. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was working on one particular text and I got to a passage about forgiveness and I asked myself, how the hell did I even get here? And how could I even tell anybody about this place? How could it be authentic to a young reader? How can, yes, it, be authentic? How can it be authentic? How can it be authentic to the ones in my classroom? Not this manual on how to get better, but how can I make it authentic? How can I show the battles and the wrestling before I even inquired about forgiveness? And that question actually led us to this podcast today. <laughs> no lie. That essential question is what caused me to author soul affirmations. Mm. When I wanted to ask myself, how did I get to this light? I went back to my journals, remember? Yeah. And I started to look at my entries, trying to understand if there was some change in my thinking, changing my habits of mind. I wanted to know where did this courage to stand in this position come from? And when I went back to my journals, Felicia and I synthesized and wrote and expounded and talked until we were able to produce what is soul affirmations. So soul affirmations is not just a collection of words. It comes from a, a journey within, a battle within. It comes from the, the bounds of grief, the abundance of love. It comes from battle and introspection, deep moral and spiritual investigation. And it brings us to this conversation today with soul affirmation with Felicia and Kariga. So I just think, <laughs> but mind you, all this is a seven year process that I'm talking about. Right. Um, and that's why we say sometimes on time still could take a little while. Right. <sighs> Precious children of the ghetto, protect your dreams. Don't ever let them settle. Don't let nobody tell you you ain't special. Don't let nobody act like you ain't meant to. Achieve at an all-time high. We are the children of an on-time God, and sometimes on-time still could take a little while. Hope is multi-generational for black and brown. We grew a garden back in August, and it harvests now. We growing roses in concrete, pockets smiling down. On the least of us, the left out and the looked over. God bless the mamas who know how to stretch them leftovers. We say our prayers, then we take another step forward. Who shall we fear if the Lord above is standing for us? Nobody. Existence, it can never win. Sons of the sun, you can see it in our melanin. Fists in the air, freedom fighters, we ain't settling. And that's where this comes from. On the road to heaven, then we got to go through hell again. Mm. My losses were the hell. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and love sustained me. Mm. Riga, I, I always say, I feel like I always say this, but I mean it. I mean it wholeheartedly. I really appreciate you being courageous enough to take us through this cognitive process. The wrestlings. Mm -hmm. None of that is easy, mm. right? It's not easy to sit with the pain mm. and explore the pain mm. and, and make peace with it. Mm. It's not easy to offer yourself even a reframing, to see your pain as evidence of your love and connection to that person and, and reframe and realize the weight of love mm. and how much greater it is than revenge. <laughs> than all of the things that it's wrestling with, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like so many different things that's being wrestled against love, but love is the one that keeps doing the wrestling. Truly, truly. Right? That's, that's part of the great weight of it. That's part of the great assault of it. Um, <sighs> but we choose it. I think, I, I want to give it to you, babe, but I just think that like June 13th, 2014, that's the date of reference. Yeah. We're talking about. Yeah. And that wrestling has persisted since then. Yes. The tears still rise yep. in my voice. Mm -hmm. It's still a fight. I just go here because I don't want people who are wrestling in these places silently mm -hmm. to be invisible or to think that they're alone. That's why I tell them about what I wrestle with. And 
it's also evidence that healing is an ongoing process. This is not no final destination point. Mm -hmm. That's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. Seven years later, and we're still reframing and redefining ourselves in this grief, you know? And, but that's powerful that you've allowed yourself to do that. I'd much rather do that to in, than to invisibilize the love that I had had for my loved one mm-hmm. and not say anything at all and not tell their story, but busy myself and act like I got other shit to do. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. really I, I love this person. This is how I feel. And you've made it your work. That's powerful. Ooh. That's powerful. It's courageous. It's not easy. And it, and I, and I say that it's not easy because when measured up against a society that is grief illiterate and doesn't understand what it looks like because of the assault of white supremacy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it changes your perception. And, and that's why I just got to really just say, one, I'm so grateful that you are my friend, my partner, my wife, my co-investigation, my principal investigator in these matters. But I'm so grateful that there's actually a community that comes to build with us and hear these stories. Because to the contrary of being invisibilized in a grief illiterate society, it could also be like folks could not have the courage or have the know-how to hear this. But folks come here regularly, week after week, to listen to and process with us and unpack these dimensions with us. So I just think it's so remarkable that there is a community uh, tuning in every week uh, for this. Yes. Because this is, yeah, self-work is noble work. And -hmm. I want to celebrate you all as you're making your uh, way through growth and exploring those feelings and those emotions. Big up to everybody who's listening right now. Absolutely. It's noble work and it's revolutionary. (laughs) It's revolutionary (laughs) like a bug, man. I just had gun fingers in the air. Yeah, and Kariga, occasionally you hear the bra, that means the gun fingers are up. They're in the air. So put your gun fingers in the air when you hear his brap. But (laughs) (laughs) no. um, Yes, again, Riga, thank you for allowing us to explore that that processing to understand more about the rage, to understand more about how it is a real. It requires real work to choose love, Mm -hmm. um, to move at that pacing. Mm -hmm. I have an affirmation that I think fits for the, the closing of this episode and if you'd like to I'm, I'm going to read it to you if you'd like to even elaborate more mm-hmm. on this processing you can but turn to your neighbor touch them with consent no I'm just kidding <laughs> page 54 of soul affirmations it says a grudge feels like power until you experience the power of love forgiveness mm-hmm. healing is liberating a grudge feels like power until you experience the power of love, healing is liberating. A grudge feels like power until you experience the power of love, healing is liberating. <laughs> it's, it's when it's when big us become little us and the emotions, the thoughts and the feelings that we thought were this large mm. are suddenly that is happening inside of us. But we are connected to something much bigger than any of us. Mm. And it is the process by which I trade in my troubles to stand on the side of love. And it doesn't mean that my troubles disappear. It means that I am standing on the side that is greater. That part. And that uh, over time, these troubles will diminish in scale because love will be growing abundantly. Mm-hmm. This is why we do the work of taking inventory of the things occupying love's territory mm-hmm. and praying for the courage and discipline to let those things go and doing the self-work to let those things go. Mm-hmm. Um, that particular affirmation is connected to the portion on the back of the book. Here's how I expound. Somewhere along the journey to find peace after losing my brother to gun violence, I made the decision to let love win. I found that there was too much pain occupying love's territory and anger as a response to the pain they caused me would only make me a participant in my own suffering. Love was the only way out. 
I could feel the presence of revenge trying to consume me. Mm. The thing about revenge was it wasn't it wasn't a uh, a power of agency that was going to work in my favor. Revenge is very uh, it's deceptive. It makes you feel empowered in the moment, but it's really only coming to consume. Mm. It doesn't have moderation. Mm. So. I didn't want to be a participant in my own suffering after what they had already caused me. I had to show up for myself differently. I cannot accept the psychology by which by default I participate in my own suffering because somebody brings me harm. I have to know who I am and what I practice even when others don't practice that towards me. Who am I and what are my values? What are my virtues? What do I stand on? What do I fight with? But that work has taken a lot of training, a lot of reframing, a lot of wrestling. But that's how I know I truly stand on the side of love. That's how I know love lifted me and love chose me. That's why I'm an ambassador of it. That's why I carry it everywhere I go. And that's why I offer it to those who have the least of it. Because I know what the true story is. I know what happens when we stand in love. I know what happens when the world no longer uses apathy as a superpower. <laughs> but they start to use measures as empathy and loving and caring. And then you have to introduce the one who loved, the one who cared, the one who suffered. And they don't really want to tell the story of the Messiah. Hmm. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to, uh, to us processed, to us refining love as a practice. And in the many spaces that it shows up. And the out loud, courageous practice of doing it so that one day we may all see further. Like each of us has a light inside of us. Um, and when we are living in our truth and our purpose, that light is activated. And it may light the path of someone to come. Or it may light the path of someone who is ahead and have not activated their light. But we know that we don't lose our light by sharing our light. Mm. We know that it grows. Soul affirmations is a source of light. Affirmations. So may you continue to be a light on your path. May the light within you continue to shine. Um, so we may all love more abundantly. That's what I'm after. That's the legacy. That's what I want for the generations. So thank y'all so much for tuning in to another episode of Soul Affirmations with Felicia and Kariga. With Kariga and Felicia. <laughs> and all of y'all. <laughs> and all of y'all doing the work out there, doing the work. That ain't easy. We acknowledge nah. it. It's a process. <laughs> if you are engaging, if this conversation touches you today, I invite you to, one, you can send any piece of feedback you want. You can yeah. follow us and you can engage you can ask a question we look forward to yeah. uh, giving you feedback also feel free to feel free to rate us feel free to review for mostly follow <laughs> we want you to follow us feel free to follow us um, and invite somebody else to follow as well yeah yeah that's that's how we're gonna spread this light mm -hmm. pull somebody in who you know is doing the work but may not have a community of support pull somebody in who is uh, needing to fill this envelope of love yeah, mm -hmm. invite somebody to follow. That's that's what I want y'all to do. That's yeah, I like that. I like that. Big ups. Thank you. Thank you, Fee. Peace. Massive love. <laughs>